Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. Welcome, everybody, um, and welcome to this look at the letter of James, which is one of the later uh, letters in the New Testament. And in fact, after this letter, there's only seven more to go uh, till we get to the end of the Bible. And in fact, we've got kind of a privilege today because we're only looking at one letter. As you know, in the past, sometimes there's been three or four letters or books kind of clumped together. So we've got a chance to dig a little more deeply uh, into this one book. Also, I just simply want to say thank you to everybody who's been making presentations over uh, the forums this year. And especially to thank Ben DeHart. Ben has created this series. He's shepherded them through. He's led most of them himself. So, Ben, we are so grateful to you for this whole series. Also, truth in advertising, I need to thank Jacob Smith because Jacob let me borrow his Bible uh, to get ready for this session. And his Bible is loaded with amazing comments that Jacob has written in the margins on the letter uh, to James. Jacob's really an expert on the letter to James, so this is really his presentation disguised as my own. Now, um, as I said, this letter comes near the end of the New Testament. We've had all four of the Gospels. We've had some of the biggies from St. Paul, the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Corinthians, and Romans. Now... We've come to several of the little tiny letters, letters from James and Peter and John, uh, before the final biggie at the very end, which is the book of Revelation. James himself is just five short chapters long. You know, when it originally arrived, it wasn't called the letter of James, and it didn't have chapter headings, and there weren't verse numbers. It was just a real letter, probably took about 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes to read it through. So, here's the first question. Who wrote this letter? Well, three guys walk into a bar in Jerusalem. And they all have the same name. They're all named James. And one of them is the son of a fisherman named Zebedee. One of them is the son of somebody we don't know anything about named Alpheus. And the third is someone whom everybody in town knows as, quote, the brother of the Lord. So these three guys are arguing over who gets the credit for this five-page letter, which is making its way from house church to house church, um, that the believers are calling the letter of James. And after a while, the bartender is sick and tired of listening to them and says, you guys are all nuts. I wrote this letter. You? Who are you? They yell. And he answers, anonymous. Well... Actually, it's probably not anonymous. We probably know who wrote it. Let's just look for a second at the three possibilities. First, there is this son, this guy named James, 
who is the son of a fisherman named Zebedee. And you may remember the scene in the Gospels where Jesus is calling the disciples to follow him. Um, and he comes to these two sons, these two brothers, uh, James and John, who are sons of this fellow Zebedee. So these, are, by the way, are the two sons, James and John, who Jesus later nicknames the sons of thunder. And he nicknames them that because at one point they, there's a village that doesn't like Jesus. And so James says, hey, Jesus, shoot down some lightning bolts to blast the town. So that's the first James. The second James is the son of this fellow named Alpheus. We don't know anything about Alpheus except that he appears in names that a couple of lists of names in the New Testament. And the third James is this one who's known as the brother of the Lord the Lord being Jesus. So, it couldn't be the son of Zebedee, because according to the book of Acts, this James was martyred in 44 AD, um, which is too soon to have written this letter, too early. Then it's iffy about the son of Alphaeus, because he only appears four times in the New Testament, and then it's only in a list of the 12 apostles. So, Christian tradition overall has pointed to the author of this letter, as James, the brother of Jesus, who's also known in Galatians as James the Just. By the way, as you probably know, many in the Catholic tradition understand the word brother to mean cousin, so as to maintain Mary's perpetual virginity. Other people speculate that he was the son of Joseph by a former marriage, in which event, in which event he would have been Jesus' half-brother. Most folk, however, most scholars and theologians and biblical folk accept Jesus, uh, James as the son of Joseph and Mary and thus the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus having the same mother, but his father was the Holy Spirit, was God. What we know about this James is that uh, he was not a believer in Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. I mean, just imagine being the physical brother of Jesus and thinking that your brother's a little crazy while he was alive. But we do know that this James did start following Jesus after the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he's listed as, as one of those to whom Jesus actually physically appeared after the resurrection and before the ascension. And then we know that he becomes one of the first leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He's known as the bishop of that church. And then according to the historian Josephus, James was uh, executed for his faith in 62 AD. So, assuming that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this letter, there are grounds for thinking that this is the oldest letter in the New Testament. Evidence suggests that it could have been written around the year 48 AD, just 15 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection and the day of Pentecost, and before the city of Jerusalem had been seized and destroyed in 70 AD. Let me just ask you, think back to 15 years ago. It's the year 2004, and I bet you could write a pretty good description of what you did that year, where you lived, who you were with, what was going on. So how incredible that we may be reading in this letter words that were written so soon after our Lord Jesus Christ walked this earth and was crucified and rose again. So, 
James is one of these no-nonsense authors. James is telling it like it is, and he doesn't seem to be interested in or worried in whether he's going to offend anyone. He just puts it out there. Also, this is one of those general epistles, or Catholic with the small c epistles, because it's not addressed to any specific person or group. It seems to have a more general audience. It's a letter to the whole church. Uh, As you can see in the handout, and by the way, the handout, I've just noted uh, some verses in this letter that I want to point to as we go along. So the very first verse, as you can see, says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And even though that reminds us of the 12 tribes of Israel, it's pretty clear here that the phrase is more figurative. Um, referring to all the followers of Jesus as a a, kind of a new Israel uh, in the the diaspora, as the followers just spread out throughout the world. We can also say that this letter is probably not uh, directed primarily to Gentile Christians, but rather to Jews who who had come to have faith in Jesus and who knew the Old Testament and kept its laws. Also, this is just a little bit more introduction here, this is by far the most practical of the New Testament letters. It's often referred to as the New Testament version of the Old Testament wisdom literature that we see in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the books like that because it is filled with moral um, exhortations. It talks about things that like uh, endurance under persecution, uh, poverty and wealth, control of the tongue, care for widows and orphans, cursing, boasting, making oaths, and things like that. And we'll get to that in a second. So as a result of that, the patron saint of Calvary St. George's Church, St. Martin Luther, um, as Ben said in the announcements, had trouble with this letter. He called it an epistle of straw. He worried that it championed law rather than faith. He worried that where St. Paul focused on grace... St. James focused on works. So we'll get into that question in just a couple of minutes. This is a real letter with real immediate purposes. James sat down somewhere, wrote it, and put an envelope and a stamp on it to send it out uh, to the Christians to encourage followers of Jesus to stand firm in the faith of persecution, to stay united with one another, to live out their faith in good works, and to be very, very careful about the temptations of worldly wealth, to be patient in suffering, and, very interestingly, to completely turn upside down the thought that sticks and tones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We'll get to that in a second also. So we're going to look at it very briefly, chapter by chapter. Chapter 1. The very first exhortation in the opening of the letter is a real doozy. Um, Jay, would you read it out loud? No, no, uh, yeah, go ahead, that's it, yep. So whenever you face trials, count it all joy. Thanks, James. Just great. 
sure makes me want to read on. But there are two things to say about that. And the first is that trials are a reality. You'll remember the book by Scott Peck titled The Road Less Traveled. Remember the very first sentence of that amazing book? It's three words long. Life is difficult. Trials are a reality. The other thing to say is that the Christian church has always flourished the most when there has been persecution. I don't know who thought up that plan, but it's true. You might say that the worst thing that ever happened to the Christian church was in 312 AD when the Roman Emperor Constantine was converted and Christians stopped being persecuted and Christianity became legal. And I just, I mean, just think about your own life. The good times that you and I have had have been wonderful and we love them and want to always have them. But at least in my life, the only time Jesus has become more real and my faith has become more tangible has when there have been struggles. So in that sense, James is saying, count it all joy when you experience various trials. As James puts it, the testing of faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, I said a minute ago that this letter is not simply moralistic. Um, it's... Uh, course, theological as well. And right away in the first chapter, James says this. Let's see. That's uh, verses 17 and 18. Norm, would you, um, in a loud voice, read verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1? Every generous act of with every perfect gift of coming down to the Father of us, with whom there is no variation, in fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us first on the word of truth, so that we become kind of first fruits of the Here's what Jacob wrote in his Bible about those verses, about that verse. Quote, the gift from above removes the blanket of piety to trust in Christ alone. These good and perfect gifts are a one-way not a two-way street. This is the gospel that makes us doers of the word. So thank you, Jacob, for pointing out that this is not just moralistic, uh, but a proclamation of good news. And then a couple of verses later, David, would you read uh, chapter 1, verse 22? It's right there, one line. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. Now, in the context of the whole of this letter, James is not focusing here on works rather than grace. He's focusing on the impact of grace, the impact of one-way love, one-way gifts of forgiveness and justification. He's focusing here on what happens to us when we really get hit by an experience of God's grace. I could put it this way. When I got married, well, a little less than a year ago to Hilda, I was really getting hit 
by an experience of grace. So when I was standing up there with Hilda over at St. George's at our wedding saying my vows, I did not secretly say to myself in that moment, okay, now that the covenant of marriage is sealed, I get to do anything I want. I also did not say to myself at that moment, boy, is Hilda so lucky. My response to getting hit by the experience of God's grace at age 72, having never been married before, to end up not being alone with this extraordinary woman, was to have an inclination to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer in response. If I had said, oh boy, now I get to do whatever I want, it would have meant that I didn't have any experience of grace. I didn't have any experience of receiving this amazing gift of uh, being the partner of a, of a wonderful woman. But I did experience it as grace. Now, doesn't mean that down the line you're not going to have to work at it a little bit, um, as we all know, um, and that's what James is talking about. So let me now highlight just a couple of uh, sections in chapter 2. James begins the chapter by nailing down the sin of showing partiality, the sin of showing favoritism to those who, for instance, uh, dress well. So let's see. John, Lavin, would you read chapter 2, verse 1 in a good, loud voice? My brothers and sisters, Do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? So just this past week, I spoke with a priest up in Massachusetts who is having a tough time in her parish. She wants to have a certain initiative in her church, but some vestry members are telling her not to. They say it's a good thing to do, but that if they do it, then one of the biggest pledgers in the church is going to leave. So they're pushing her to not do it. That is called the sin of partiality. Then James goes on to say, and maybe Mary Ellen, would you read the next uh, verses 9 and 12 and 13? But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So speak and so act as folks who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So it's true, God's mercy triumphs over the failure of our works. Or as Jacob puts it in his notes, in his Bible, the law is total, so we need mercy. It triumphs over judgment and our works. Then we come to the primary spot in this letter in which Martin Luther has problems. 2 verses 14 through 19. Uh, Doug, would you read that in a good loud voice? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food... And one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and eat your full. And yet, you do not supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So faith, by itself, if it has no words, is dead. But someone will say, 
You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That last sentence is a real zinger. And it's perfectly true. James goes on right after these verses to use two Old Testament characters uh, to make his point. He refers to Abraham offering his son Isaac as works. And he refers to Rahab, the harlot, welcoming the messengers as works. But he's not saying that Abraham and Rahab are earning their way to heaven by doing these works in their own native strength. At the core here, there's no difference really between the teaching of Paul and the teaching of James. James is concluding that while faith without works is dead, it cannot be said that works of any kind are necessary to salvation or that works can save anyone. As Jacob puts it in his notes in the margin, quote, faith brings us alive and brings forth good works. Good works follow faith. The biblical hermeneutic is that we interpret James through Paul and Paul through the cross. And by Paul, he really means Romans 7, but we'll get to that in a second. Now, chapter 3. This is where James gets a little bit uptight and personal. And clergy are supposed to pay special attention because listen to the first verse. Um, Christina, would you read the first one, verse? Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. All right. Then he spells out exactly what he means um, a few verses later. Uh, Steve Bohall, would you read on the top of the next page, that next paragraph? Look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot, whenever, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great is, is how great forest of, is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a work of iniquity, but stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself <coughs> fire by hell. No one can tame the tongue, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. I am not going to ask for a show of hands for those who feel a little convicted by hearing those verses. But it certainly disproves the old adage that sticks and stones might break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I remember a a friend at seminary um, who um, would gossip disguised as prayer of concerns. Nancy and Ben and Jake and I would never do that, of course, but um, yeah. 
Nine years ago in South Hadley, Massachusetts, right next to where I live um, in Springfield, um, a 15-year-old high school uh, student named Phoebe Prince hung herself after being bullied uh, by her classmates. The list of things that I've said that I wish I could take back um, is pretty long. But I can't, which is why I'm especially thankful for what Jacob wrote in the margin of his Bible right here. He wrote... This is true, and this should throw us on the gospel. Go to Romans 7. (laughs) And Jacob is referring to where, of course, St. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And he's saying this as a follower of Jesus. There are a few theologians who say, well, this is before I became a Christian, but they're wrong. He's saying this as a Christian. And he ends up as a Christian saying, wretched man that I am. Again, I won't go around and ask for a show of hands, but the times in which you and I, at moments in our lives, quietly to ourselves, maybe at 3 a.m., have said, wretched man or woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of strength? Because I can't do it on my own. All right. Chapter 4. Listen to what Jacob writes in his margin of chapter 4. He writes, chapter 4 is the dropping of the hammer. So look at the first verse. Nancy Hannah, would you read the first verse? These conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? Isn't that a great analogy to talk about what's going on inside us as a war? as a conflict, because when that's happening, it's hard to fall asleep at night. Listen to how James addresses the problem of these wars, and it's the next section, uh, verses 7 uh, through 10. Brittany, would you read verses 7 through 10? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So that sounds pretty heavy, but let me give you an example to look at that in a different light. Uh, my wife Hilda has a brother named Carlos lives up in Springfield as well. He's a wonderful guy. He's married with two daughters and one granddaughter. Um, A year and a half ago, one evening in our kitchen, Carlos was visiting, and he said to us, there were about seven or eight of us in the kitchen, he said, I feel as though a huge weight has been lifted off my shoulders. And when I asked why, Carlos said, because last night, for the first time in my life, I stood up in front of a big group of people and said, I am an alcoholic. It's been a year and a half. Uh, it's actually been two years, because it was November, two years ago. He got, one of, he got, his, two-year, uh, got his two-year coin at an AA meeting. He um, was feeling double-minded. He was, had been lamenting and mourning and weeping. His laughter had turned to mourning, his joy to, to dejection. Um, And as he finally was humbled, um, joy entered his life in a way that he'd never experienced before. 
Isn't it wonderful to think that what started in this building uh, with Sam Shoemaker in the 1930s, the beginning of AA, extended all the way to our kitchen in Springfield uh, to new life as well. Humble yourselves and he will exalt you. Well, so chapter 5. We're coming to the last chapter. And the hammer keeps on dropping as James keeps on telling it like it is. So listen to uh, the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. Kevin, would you read verses 1 and 2, please? Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, and your clothes are moth-eaten. Let me tell you how I connect with that verse. I have only flown first class a couple of times in my life, and it's, it's because I've been bumped up. But you know what happened to me? I sat down in that seat, and the steward came and said, Mr. Monroe, would you like a glass of wine? Uh, and within 30 seconds, I was knowing that I was there because of who I am. And if those poor schmucks back in cabin had just worked a little harder, they could have been there also. And so, I mean, I can't ever fly first class because it happens every time. And then when I have to sit back there with the sinners again, you know. So, come now, you first class flyers, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted. So... Then, uh, as James gets toward the end of his letter, he gets more positive. So then we got verses 8 and 9. Let's see. Uh, Tete, would you read verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5 there? You also must be patient, strengthen your heart, for the coming of the Lord is near. Okay, listen to what Jacob writes in his margin right here. He writes, the judge is Jesus. Thank God. (laughs) He has redeemed you and declared you righteous. So now let's just close by looking at how James concludes the letter with the last verses. And just for fun, I printed it out not in the New Revised Standard Version, but rather in the version written by Eugene Peterson called The Message, which is not a literal translation. It's kind of a, kind of a, a sort of translation. Uh, but I thought we'd look at it in a different way. The last words. And maybe, Ben, would you um, read the last section? If you sin, you'll be forgiven, healed inside and out. Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. The prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. Elijah, for instance, human like us, prayed hard and couldn't rain, and it didn't. Not a drop of three and a half years. Then he prayed that it would rain, and it did. The showers came, and everything started growing again. 
My dear friends, if you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, don't write them off. Go after them. Get them back and you will have rescued precious lives from destruction and prevented an epidemic of wandering away from God. By the way, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where there is a reference to using anointing when you do prayers for healing. So, I want to close by saying the same thing that I said in my sermon. Do you think that what we are doing here is unimportant? We are getting blasted by experiences of grace. So let the works flow. Amen. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.